Our second lesson is from the epistle to the Romans, which had so much to do with the Reformation. But I want you to read it with me, and you can find it in the back of your hymn book under the selection numbered 56. Selection number 56 in the back of the hymnal, which is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is one of the most important passages in all of your Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's read these words from God's word in unison. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. While we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received a reconciliation. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. In 1963, the president of Montreat Anderson College and the president of the Mountain Retreat Association, Dr. Greer Davis, addressed the men of the Montreat Presbyterian Church all ten of us, <laughs> over in the assembly inn at a very small meeting. I'll never forget that night because it was during the uh, Second Vatican Council meeting. And Dr. Davis raised the proposition that perhaps the Holy Spirit was doing a great work of grace in the Roman Catholic Church. I remember coming away from the meeting a little bit offended at Dr. Davis for saying that because it didn't occur to me that the Lord might work in that way, although I knew Roman Catholics who were Christians, but I was just that narrow-minded. Now, an honest confession is good for the soul, but it's very hard on your reputation. But, <laughs> but I'm making it. Uh, Dr. Davis was right, and I was wrong. And we began to see some wonderful things take place in the Roman Catholic Church. Let me say this. I'm holding in my hand a copy of the breviary which is used by most Roman Catholic priests in the United States of America. This edition was printed in September 1971. If you turn in this edition to page 1300, you will find a hymn to be used written by none other than Martin Luther, none other than the hymn which you just sung a moment ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Bulwark Never Failing. Great things are happening. 
out in uh, Great Bend, Kansas, next month, it will be my privilege to speak on evangelism in a meeting preparing for Key 73, which will be a great united evangelistic thrust in America. It's interesting to me that while a great many liberal Protestants who neither believe in heaven or hell or salvation uh, have rejected this effort, that the chairman of the committee out there is the Roman Catholic priest. Not only that, but I had an excited telephone call. In fact, I've had about six or seven of them from a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Now, brother, when you get a Missouri Synod Lutheran and a Roman Catholic priest working together, there's going to be some kind of revival taking place, and especially when they invite a Presbyterian preacher. <laughs> and uh, so I'll be going out there next month. Uh, later on in, uh, in, the, in November, I will be speaking at the uh, North Carolina State Baptist Convention Pastors Conference. What I'm saying is this, that there is a breaking down of denominational distinction because the Holy Spirit is working in uniting believers who believe in the reality of faith in Jesus Christ and the necessity of faith in Christ for salvation. The Roman Catholics of this day and time not only include Martin Luther's hymn in the Brevary, but are beginning to read again the works of Luther himself and to find in him a rediscovery of the grace of God. Often, I wonder about the people who are put on the cover of Time magazine. Here is an issue of Time magazine with a portrait of Martin Luther. Now, when you've been dead for 450 years, and they still put your cover, your picture on the cover of Time, what you must have said is relevant and meaningful. Now, Martin Luther said something that was relevant and meaningful. Because man is basically a sinner, he is alienated from God. He senses it. He may drug himself with alcohol. He may lose sight of it in a pursuit of sex or money or fame or pleasure. But deep down in his soul, when he's alone with his own deep thoughts, he knows that he is alienated from his creator, and his heart cries out for peace with God. Now Martin Luther's heart cried out for peace with God. He wanted that peace desperately. The Black Death had swept over Europe, decimating entire centers of population. Often there were travelers who came upon whole villages where every inhabitant was dead, and people were afraid of death. And Martin Luther was afraid of death. Now, Martin Luther was not only afraid of death. Martin Luther knew that somehow or other he would eventually be saved because he had been baptized when he had been born. He was baptized into the church. And yet, Martin Luther had no peace because he realized that that baptism after that baptism, there would be sins that he would commit. And somehow an atonement had to be made for these sins. And he thought that that atonement would come by veneration of relics of the saints or going through them. And so he was not at peace in his soul. He realized that he would have to go into a state called purgatory if he died. And there in purgatory would be purged away the sins that he had committed after baptism. 
A significant date in Martin Luther's life is July the 2nd, 1505. On a hot, sultry day, this 22-year-old, who was a Master of Arts degree graduate, was out on a road and a fierce thunderstorm broke, and a bolt of lightning struck near to where Luther was. Luther fell to the ground, trembling in fear, and screamed to the top of his voice, Saint Anna, save me, and I will become a monk. Now, why did he crawl to call to Saint Anna? Why did he not say, God save me? Why did he not say, Jesus save me? You see, the church had become so corrupt and so debased by this time that man, by his accretions of traditions and teachings that were obscuring the gospel, had made him to believe that he had to go through saints in order to get to God, that there was no direct access to God by faith in Jesus Christ, but that when he was born and baptized and named after St. Martin of Tours, that the patron saint of the copper miners, his father was a copper miner, was St. Anna. St. Anna was uh, believed to be the mother of Mary, and Saint, he would go to St. Anna, and St. Anna would go to Mary, and Mary would go to Jesus, and Jesus would go to God. This was the way he believed in the bells of the tower in the church in which Martin Luther was baptized. There are inscriptions still to be found. In 1499, it says, St. Mary, save us, also Peter and Paul. Uh, then uh, a few years later, you see other saints added, St. Stephen, St. Arnold, St. Martin, save us. You, but the interesting thing about those inscriptions on the bells is nowhere does it say, Jesus, save us. Nowhere does it even say, God, save us. Because it was thought that you had to go through all of these various saints in order to get to God. Now, when Martin Luther had made his plea in that moment of desperation and in that madness of despair and had cried out to God, had cried out to St. Anna to save him, he kept his vow. This was a little bit unusual, but he called a feast together. He handed out his books. He was studying to be a lawyer. And to the great contempt of his father, Martin Luther went to an Augustinian monastery and presented himself there as a candidate to become a monk. Because he thought that by entering into a monastery and being shut off from all other life, and through lonely vigils of prayer, and through fasting and self-flagellation, and through the veneration of relics of the saints, that somehow God would purge away his sins. You see, there was no question about his being a sinner. He knew that. What he wanted was peace with God and forgiveness of his sins, but he thought that he had to earn it in all of these ways. Well, he was still not at peace with God. He says that he fasted, so much that for three days at a time he would not eat so much as one crumb of bread, that he wasted away. He would pray for as long as six hours at a time. He had 21 different saints that he prayed to, but still there was misery in his soul because he knew that basically he was a sinner and he was not at peace with God. Praise God, he had a wonderful vicar general, whose name was Stolpitz, and Stolpitz was able to help him. 
You know how he did it? First, he decided he would send him to Rome. And he sent him to Rome, and Martin Luther went all the way to Rome, which was the Christian capital of the world. And he thought surely that if he went to Rome and he crawled up the Scala Santa, the sacred stairs that Jesus is supposed to have ascended in Pilate's Hall, that if he walked up those stairs and said a prayer that he could uh, get even his father and mother's soul out of purgatory, he thought that God would make him holy. And yet when he got to Rome, he found that much of the church was corrupt and evil. And that when this sincere, devout country bumpkin from Germany took so sincerely his prayers, he was nudged by other priests who said, get on with it, pray. And he was heartbroken at what he saw. He did not feel any relief in his soul, and he came back to Germany with still no peace with God. One day, his vicar general heard him at confession, and he broke down, and out of his heart there flowed a great hostility. And he said to his vicar general, I don't love God, I hate God. And then he wept. And the vicar general said, why do you hate God? And he said, he demands of me that I be righteous, but there is nothing that I can do to gain righteousness. And the vicar general said to him, you must read the scriptures. I want you to earn your doctor of theology degree. And so Martin Luther began his pursuit of his doctrine. And it took him into biblical studies. And when he had qualified himself and had become a, a doctor of sacred theology, he, be, he was sent to the little university town of Wittenberg. Only 2,000 inhabitants were there. And Martin Luther began to lecture in this tiny little college, not as big as Montreat Anderson College. He began to lecture. He lectured in 1513 and 1514 on the Psalms. And do you know what he discovered? When he got into the Psalms and he read Psalm 22 and it said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther looked at that psalm. And Martin Luther began to apply the scriptures to his own personal life. And he thought, why does the psalmist say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it occurred to him that this was the very psalm that Christ, the Redeemer, had himself prayed to God when he was dying upon a cross. And Luther thought, I am sinful. I know why I must pray for forgiveness. But why does Jesus on the cross pray, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would God forsake his son? And then the thought came over Martin Luther. He was forsaken for me. Christ's sacrifice was so great that he was forsaken for me. That he who knew no sin, he who was perfect, Jesus, became sin and took all of my sin upon his own body on that tree, and he paid the price for my sin. And when Luther began to think about that, his whole soul was startled that a righteousness which he could not earn had been conferred upon him, but how? And then in 1516, he began to read Romans. He read in the first chapter of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power, dynamite, the power 
of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Then he learned that the just, those who are declared just by God, are to live by faith. And this was a tremendous discovery to him. And of course, when he comes to chapter 5 of Romans, which we read together a moment ago, what a marvelous revelation this brings to Martin Luther. You see that therefore that begins this chapter 5 is where Paul, therefore, since we are justified by faith, all of the chapters up to this have been showing us how man is a sinner, how man cannot earn his salvation, but how salvation comes to him on the basis of his belief in the promises of God. And this struck Luther with a profound sense of the love of God. He realized that he did not hate God, but he loved God because God loved him. And Martin Luther, after studying Romans and Galatians and Hebrews and preaching these great epistles to his people, he didn't realize that what he was going to do was to start a reformation, a reforming of the church. But there had been a terrible thing that took place. Men's sins were being singled out and valued and a price tag placed on them and they were being forgiven because of money that they paid. Master Raphael and Michelangelo had to be paid. The dome of St. Peter's Cathedral was being erected in Rome. The Pope had sold, had made uh, illegally a contract with Albert of Mainz in Germany gave him the great high office of an archbishop, sold it to him, and in order to recoup his money, which he had borrowed, the archbishop had borrowed from the Fugger Banking Company, he was allowed to sell indulgences. And Martin Luther, a good godly pastor, had people coming to confessions, and they were saying to him, we don't need to confess anything, we've already been forgiven. Here is my ticket that shows I've paid the price and my sin is forgiven. And Luther was horrified. Luther realized that John Tetzel was selling the merit of God, the favor of God, the love of God. Beware, beware of any teaching about faith in Christ that teaches you that salvation is based upon your works. It is not. Now, a saving faith will work, but salvation is not based upon works. It is based upon the grace of God received by faith alone. And so, Luther challenged Tetzel to a debate. It was sort of like that film, they gave a war, but nobody came. Martin Luther went down to the little village church, the castle church in Wittenberg, and he tacked his 95 theses on the door of the castle church. One of his theses shows the shrewd logic of this remarkable man. He said, if the Pope controls all of the souls in purgatory, why does he not, out of the goodness of his heart, let all the people out for free instead of selling the right to get out of purgatory? Well, a German peasant could read that and understand it. And, and so Luther made a tremendous point with it. And then he began to see that the grace of God, that man is saved by this unmerited favor, this love of God which has been revealed in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. The personal reformation had already taken place in his heart 
and Martin Luther has found peace with God, peace with God on the basis of Christ's merit. Now he has found that he has access to God by faith and that he stands by grace. This is what Paul is saying in the fifth chapter of Romans, wherein we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation. After I have yielded myself to the Lordship of Christ and I have accepted the full pardon and forgiveness of my sins, does this mean that no longer will there be any sufferings or troubles that come to me? No. But we are told here that God will put a new light even upon the trials that come to us. The tribulation will work patience and patience experience. Here we are told in the RSV translation of that five, that it, uh, of Romans 5, that it works character. And that's what it does. Tribulation works character. We say of a person he has strong character because he has stood the test. He has stood the test, and therefore we say he has certain characteristics. This is characteristic of him. It has been proven out in the tests of his life. And so the believer in Jesus, who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, and in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, that believer in the trials of life is being perfected and tested by God as God uses him to make him what he ought to be. And that casts a whole new light on it. Here is a book. It's called Power and Praise. A great many people have read it. The theme of this book is to praise God even for the trials that we go through because God is teaching us some lessons here. He is teaching us that not only the good things that happen to us, but the bad things that happen to us, so-called bad, may be works of his grace and that we are to rejoice even in tribulation. It was a hard lesson for this man to learn. And this, this is so interesting to me because, oh, three years ago I was riding and a friend of mine has one of these little Lear jets and we were riding in it going down to Miami, Florida. And he opened up the, uh, I had my New Testament. And we were talking, it was about this time of the year, and we were talking about faith in Jesus Christ. And he said to me, do you know what to me is the greatest verse in the Bible? And I said, no. And he said, it's Romans 10 and 9, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. To me, the fact that God would save me just because I believe his promise is to me an astonishing thing. That to me, he said, is the greatest verse in the Bible. I saw him again at Expo 72 in Dallas. And he said, you know, God has been working on me. God has been teaching me to praise him in times of trials, and he has done it through this book. Three, I guess about three weeks ago, he called me one night on the phone. Everyone uses him during the stewardship season because he is a a faithful tither and has given away uh, a great amount of money. And he called me and he said, listen, I'm about to uh, give my tithing testimony and to talk about giving. And he said, you know something that I told you last spring. And he said, God taught me a wonderful lesson. 
He said, in 24 months, I lost $8 million of my own personal, my own personal wealth, not my corporation, but my own personal wealth went down $8 million in 24 months. Now, he said, when that happens to me, it gets my attention. Uh, and he said, though, God taught me something that was worth every penny of the $8 million. He said, I had been praising God for all the great success of my company, but deep down in my soul, I thought I was the one who rigged it all and I made the success, and I was trying to act as though God had done it when I gave my testimony, and I had a fake humility. Well, he said, when God took eight million bucks out of my bank account, it made me think. He said, I began to think that maybe I ought to praise God for what had happened to me in losing eight million dollars. And he said, when I began to praise God for this, he suddenly began to reveal to me that I needed to humble myself before him in a way that I had not done before. And he said, oh, the lessons that he has taught me since then, the lessons that came to me, the tribulation had worked in him character and is working in him. His business, uh, he, he told me in the last conversation that his business had bounced back and was prospering. But he said, even if it hadn't prospered, even if I had lost my whole business and every dime that I possessed, he said, God had taught me a lesson to depend upon him, to depend upon him. Do you know the greatest insult you can give to another person? I'll tell you what it is. Call him a liar. Just say, I wouldn't believe you if you told me tomorrow was money. I think you are a liar. Well, the promises of God are given to us, and we are to believe them. And when we believe that the promise of God is to give us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, we do not honor God when we call him a liar, but we honor God when we believe him and accept the gift of salvation. Accept the gift of salvation. Now we are told here that the Holy Spirit floods our hearts with love, the love that God puts into them. We are also told in this remarkable passage of Scripture, when we were without strength, when we were helpless, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for me because I deserved his death. I didn't do anything to merit that sacrifice which he offered for me. He died for me when I was ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, people who missed the mark, the whole thing that life is about, while we were missing the mark, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, for if when we were enemies, enemies of God because we would not believe and obey him, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more? Shall we be reconciled and saved by his life, that life of Christ that comes to dwell in us? We are saved by his death and by his life. Some of you know Paul Long. He is a missionary of the Presbyterian Church, U.S., out in Brazil. 
one night down at the manse, we had a group of students, and I asked Paul to come and speak to them about faith in Jesus Christ. And I said to him, Paul, tell us how you became a Christian. And he told how he had dabbled with Christianity in college, but that it was really not until World War II that he surrendered his life in devotion to Jesus Christ. He said that because his people had been people who raised horses and had stables where they trained riding, he was put into the mule trains that carried ammunition uh, out in China and Burma during World War II. He said that once when they were going across a narrow mountain path, they were expecting the enemy, they were heavily armed, and one of the men in front of them had a hand grenade attached to his person, uh, to his clothing. The hand grenade somehow jostled loose. The pin came out of it. The handle flew off in the air, and that deathly snap was heard when the cap fired. That means that in five seconds, that hand grenade would explode into fragments of death. He said there was a boy from Georgia who pounced on that hand grenade, and there was that sickening, muffled explosion. And the boy was blown to bits. Paul said that when he heard the snap, he had dived over toward a ditch, and the man in front of him had dived another way. He said when they got up, here was this gutted hulk of a soldier, blown to pieces and dead, and they looked there at his body. Paul said that Words came from his lips without thinking, and he said it sort of makes you think. Are you worthy of someone dying for you that way? He said that his sergeant said, I don't know about you, but I know I'm not worthy, and I don't think you are either. And then Paul said that when he began to re reflect upon the devotion of that soldier and how touched he was by it, he thought about the one who died for us on the cross, how he gave himself to pay the price for our sins, and that he could not do less than yield his life in loving devotion to the one who had given his all for him. My only comfort in life and in death is that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his own precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and so delivered me from all the power of the devil that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And also by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me ready and willing henceforth to live unto him. That salvation can be yours. But the total gift of God demands the total surrender of yourself in return to give as much of yourself as you know to as much of him as you understand. Let us pray. Our Father,
the text has been so big in the story of salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, is so marvelous and our minds are so full of deadening familiarity with the truth of the gospel. Help us not to throw this dynamite into a corner, but help us to take it and let it be powerful in our own lives, taking out of them that which is evil and promoting in them that which is holy and good in thy presence. Grant that we may have a personal reforming, a personal reformation that will reform our lives by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.